if you have anything to take notes or some of you take notes later. You just go back on the live stream and watch it and take notes later. However you're doing that, let me give you some good notes to think about when you look at this text. Both parts of the text that we read contain the same three themes. I'm going to say it again. Both parts of the text, the first five verses, the next five verses, even though they're covering different content, they contain the same three themes. The themes are this. No vision, blurred vision, clear vision. If you read the text, all throughout the text, you'll see that those themes threaded, you know, like through a, a large quilt. No vision or blindness, blurred vision, and then clear vision. Let's, let's start identifying the themes in the text. Verse 22 says, then he came to Bethsaida. Everyone say Bethsaida. Yeah, you speak pretty good Greek. Say Bethsaida. He came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him. Let's deal with Bethsaida and talk about our themes. No vision, blurred vision, clear vision. Bethsaida is the first thing in the text that exemplifies no vision, just blind. Bethsaida was a blind city, blind to the gospel of Jesus Christ, blind to the message of his redemption. Bethsaida was one of only three cities that Jesus cursed in his ministry. He wept over Bethsaida because he had invested miracles in Bethsaida. He had invested messages and ministry in Bethsaida. He had made an open showing to who he was in Bethsaida. And still they rejected him and were blind to who he was, captivated by their own wickedness and faithlessness. So maybe it's no accident that this blind man is from a blind city because your environment matters more than you think. And then we go from that in the text, a blind man, blind city, and we find out there's also a blind region, a region that has no vision. We look down at verses 27 and 28. He and his disciples went to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. So what is Caesarea Philippi? It's a one region that has many towns. They went to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people around here say that I am? And the disciples, you know, they answer, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah. Uh, some think you're one of the prophets, you know, brought back from the dead revealing that the whole region, though they have been exposed to Jesus' words, though they have been exposed to Jesus' presence and his miracles, they still were not sure, really, who he was. And you wonder how they could have missed it. They've watched him feed thousands of people with a sack lunch. They have watched him heal people. They have watched him raise the dead. And still, we're not sure. I mean, it's not like, folks, it's not like they were reading about who Jesus was. They were watching the stuff we're reading about today and still didn't know he was. They confused the creation with the creator. Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets, those are created things. This is the creator. This is God himself. Paul writes that Jesus is the image of God. And yet, they beheld him, they, they, they looked at him, but they didn't, really, they didn't really see him. And then it gets worse 
verse 29, he turns to his own disciples, his boys, his, the people he was walking with, living with, eating with, teaching constantly. And he asks them, who do you say? Verse 29, who do you say that I am? Now, before we get to Peter's answer, which is pretty loud, it's a loud answer, it's a good answer. But louder than Peter's answer is the silence of the other 11. Because notice the text said, only Peter answered. And, and this is a frustration that we all face. How can you live with and love people that really don't understand who you are? This is that blurred vision component. They, they knew some about him, but, but they weren't really able to properly identify who he was. And it brings great stress to you and great pain when the people closest to you can't fully identify who you really are. It's like your identity in their perception gets locked in a prison. And you may be a lot more than they think, but they'll never think you more than they think you, and you get stuck. And there's more to your identity than their perception, but they'll be locked out of it because they can't see it. You can only be something to someone that they recognize you as. Thank you for your enthusiasm. I know it was good. So Peter answers, and Matthew 16, 17, and 18 gives you more details on what he said. Peter answers and says, I say you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter, you've just got a revelation from the Father. And I also say to you that you are Peter. I'm changing your name, boy. You are Peter. And on this rock, the rock of what? The rock of the revelation you just had that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. On this rock, I will build my church. Peter, I'm going to build my entire church off a revelation you just had. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Because revelation has benefits. Because you had this revelation about me, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This was a great moment for Peter. You can imagine how small the other disciples felt. Silent on Jesus when he was asking about who he was. And, and Peter answers correctly and gets all this praise and this admonishment just poured on him by Jesus. So, so far in the text, remember I told you the themes, the three themes. We've discussed a blind city, Bethsaida. We've discussed a blind region, Caesarea Philippi. We've discussed 11 disciples who had blurred vision, weren't really sure. And we've discussed Peter, the disciple, who concerning who Jesus was could see clearly. Okay? Now, sandwiched in between all of those things is a blind man. 
verse 22 says that a blind man came to him from Bethsaida begging. And he wasn't begging for money. He wasn't begging for a blessing. He was begging to be touched. Came begging that he would touch him. Because mankind was created by the touch of God. He's been craving it ever since. And he came begging that Jesus would, would touch him. So verse 23 says Jesus did touch him. He, he, Jesus took the blind man by the hand. Oh, he's touching him. He took the blind man by the hand. Jesus has done a lot less than this and people get healed. Jesus has stood in one location and spoken a word to the centurion servant who was in another location, and that servant got healed. You know, Jesus told 10 lepers, go show yourself to the priest. Didn't even touch him. While he were walking away, they, they, got, they got healed. Jesus just touched the box, not the body, just the box of the widow of Nain's son, and the dead boy got up out of the casket. Jesus don't have to touch you to heal you, but Jesus... Jesus took the man by the hand, verse 23, and, and starts leading him out of the city. He, he touched him, and he's, and he's leading him. But the text tells us that the man was still blind. That it's possible for God to touch you, and it's possible for God to be leading you. And still your situation hasn't changed. You ever been in a powerful service and you can't deny that God touched you. And you can't deny that God is leading you. It's just that your, your situation hadn't changed. Remember I told you you got to ask the text some questions. Why didn't the first touch work? The God of all creation, the word in the beginning, John said. That in verse 14 of his chapter 1, he said it was made flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Why didn't the first touch work? Why didn't the first touch work for you? Many times as you've been touched by God, why didn't the first touch well, because the first touch was not to heal him. You'll notice verse 23 says, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the city. The first touch wasn't to heal him. It was to bring him out of the toxic, blind environment of Bethsaida. Because Jesus knows you'll never really get your vision if you're stuck in a blind environment. Uh, uh, yeah. 
Jesus knows that the environment, the wickedness, the faithlessness of Bethsaida will poison the miracle that the man is seeking. So he does not waste the miracle on someone who will lose it in a couple of days because of the poison of their environment. He takes him and leads him out of the city. So yes, he's touching him and yes, he's leading him and yes, he's still blind because before Jesus makes him better, he has to bring him out of the environment that has made him worse. And so for those of you who know you've been touched by God, but your situation hasn't changed, it could be that you're in the process of being led to a better place, led to a better position, led to a better station in life, so that when he gives you what you're really seeking, you don't squander it and waste it, or you don't pollute it by the environment that you've planted yourself in. You may already be in the process of a breakthrough and a miracle, but before the miracle comes, part of the process is being led out of certain environments, being led away from certain people, being led away from certain ways of thinking, being led away from certain habits, being led away so you can receive what you need from the Lord. He, he touched him to do that, and he's touched him, as the text said, and he, he led he led him by the hand. He just grabbed him by the hand. It just makes chill bumps go all over me that Jesus, the God, just God in the flesh, just grabbed the man by the hand and just, just leading him out of the city. But he's got to follow Jesus in the dark. And to all of you who are trying to follow the Lord in a dark place, let the text encourage you. Because the text does not say that the blind man grabbed Jesus by the hand. Because the blind man's grip could slip. The text said that Jesus grabbed him by the hand. It is not that you are holding on to God, ladies and gentlemen. It is that God is holding on to you. Your deliverance is not predicated by how strong your grip is. Your deliverance is predicated by how strong his grip is. Jesus took him. Took him by, took him by the hand. And the first thing the Lord told me to tell you is that he's holding you. Whoever you are, hallelujah, that needs that word, the Lord sent me to tell you he's holding you. In fact, if you're curious how you've made it this far in your life, you've made it not because you were holding on to him. You made it this far because he's been holding on. He's been holding on to you. And here lately, there's been some negative voices from the enemy coming to tell you that you've blown it one too many times or you've messed up too bad or that somehow God has let you go. Next thing you wanted me to tell you is I'm still holding you. I'm still holding you. You messed up, but I'm still holding you. You made mistakes, but I'm still holding you. You've had failures, but I'm still holding you. Been through attacks and been through trouble, but I'm still holding you. I want to let you know he hadn't lost his grip on your life. When God takes your hand once, he wouldn't have taken your hand once if he didn't intend to lead you all the way. He said, boy, go in there and tell him I still got them in my hand. Shout, he's holding me. No, you didn't shout it. Shout, he's holding me. 
And then, then he, verse 23, he, he, he took the blind man, he led him out of town, and, and when he had spit on his eyes, I don't know what to tell you about that. <laughs> I'm well read, I'm well studied, I, I really searched it out, nobody knows. Uh, none of the commentators know. The best they offer is, is opinions. One commentator wrote that uh, one of the highest forms of DNA is found in your saliva, and it could be that he was putting the DNA of God on the problem that the man had. And that's possible. It's plausible. Uh, but I don't know. I, I just know he's done a thing with spit before with people that had blinded eyes. You remember when he spit in the ground and made mud and put the mud in the... So, so he, he's using a common method that he used to heal blind people. He spits in his eyes. But what I want you to focus on, he spits in his eyes and put his hands on him. And then, here's where the, the questions need to start. Then he asked the man if he saw anything. Now, Jesus is not a faith healer, you know, in a crusade with lines, taking his jacket, hitting people, you know. A common thing you'll see with faith healers is they'll pray for somebody and then they'll step back and they'll say, okay, now, how are you? You know, they'll pray for somebody's leg, you know, that came on crutches and then they'll ask them, well, how are you doing? How are you, you know, how's it, how's it work? Let me see. Jesus is not no faith healer. Jesus knows what condition the man's eyes are in. And yet he asked him, how's your vision? You see anything? That's a question, man. We need, to, we need to deal with that. Why? The first touch didn't work when he grabbed him by the hand, let him out. And now he's spitting his eyes. That didn't work. And now he's, he's laid hands on him. Then he asked, how's it, how's it working for you? How's it looking? Every touch has a test. You don't get to receive the touch and escape test. So verse 24, he looks up and he answers Jesus. He said, well, I see men like, um, men look like trees walking around. I'm, I'm better than I was. Before I had no vision. Remember our themes? But now I've got, Lord, I, I'm better, but I'm blurry. I need one more. Now, I told you, two separate accounts connected by one bridge verse. Bridge verse, verse 24. 
I said, I can see a man, but, but he looks like a tree walking. Now, the concept of a man and a tree will reappear later in the text. Because this isn't the only blind man in the chapter. He's not the only one struggling to see something about a man and a tree. When Jesus asked Peter who he was, Peter has clear vision. I say you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But when Jesus brought up the fact that he would have to suffer and die on a tree, when the concept of that man, Jesus, dying on a tree, Peter went blind. So the same thing that has happened to the blind man has happened to Peter, except in reverse. The blind man comes first, right? He goes from no vision to blurred vision to eventually clear vision. Peter starts with clear vision, then goes to blurred vision, then has no vision when he rebukes Jesus Christ over the cross. And the same thing is happening in both parts of the text. What the blind man is going through naturally, Peter is going through spiritually. Proving to us that it's possible to be clear and blurry and blind all at the same. Clear about this, blurry about that, blind about that. You know, people hate admitting that they have contradictions in their lives. We hate that too. We like to label people. And it, it's not easy to label people who truly have contradictions because sometimes the label fits. Sometimes it doesn't. When Peter saw clearly that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus Christ said, Peter, boy, you're a rock. I'm going to build my church based off of what you just saw and said. And in the same chapter, couple verses later, Jesus looks at the same man he just called a rock and calls him a devil. Proving you can be in the same day a rock about this stuff and a devil about that stuff all at the same time. Everybody's got a part of them that's a rock. And everybody's got a part of them that can be a little devilish. All in the same person, all at the same time all in the same life. And because people 
are so resistant to admit that they call you silly things like hypocrite. If someone would have been watching what was happening with Peter, they would have called him a hypocrite. It wasn't a hypocrite. He, he was just clear about some things, blurry about others, and blind to everything else. So this brings stress. Every one of every one of you in the room, you're clear about some things, blurry about others, and blind about the rest. But the stress in our lives doesn't come from either extreme. The stress in our lives does not come from the things we can't see, because we can't see them. Can't be stressed about what you don't know about. Doesn't come from the things that we can't see. And it doesn't come from the things that we can see clearly. The stress in our lives comes from all the things that are blurry, that we're struggling to see. And what I want to tell you is it's okay to be in a blurred stage. Right about this, wrong about that. Where you're wrong doesn't cancel where you're right. What you can't see doesn't cancel what you can. So back to the blind man. In the text, he makes a courageous faith decision. He says, you've helped me. I'm better. But I'm going to need one more touch. I'm going to need one more experience. I, I'm good, but I'm not where I need to be. I need you to do it one more time. This is the only time in Scripture that Jesus' first touch didn't work. Maybe now you can see why. Jesus is hoping that the experience with the man will be seen by Peter and seen by us to help us realize that just because you've been touched by God doesn't mean you escape blurry stages. And this is important to know. In the text, the man did not get healed because of his faith. The man got healed because of his honesty. If when Jesus asked him, how are you doing? How, how's your vision? If he would have said, oh, I'm good, Lord, he would have lost his opportunity for restoration. But because he was honest, because he looked at Jesus and said, I hate to trouble you, but I'm going to need one more. Because he was willing to have received something, but still recognize he wasn't all the way there. Because he was honest, he eventually got completely restored. Jesus is just using it as an option lesson with all the pageantry and all the questions to hopefully show Peter 
just because you get a touch of revelation, just because you see something clearly from the Father, just because you're an anointed apostle, just because you're anointed and called to preach and teach, just because I'm going to make you the first bishop of Jerusalem, just because on the day of Pentecost, you're going to be the one that preaches the inaugural message, just because you're going to do all that doesn't mean that you don't still need one more in other words, don't walk with me so long and don't listen to me so much and hang around me so much and get so used to me that you don't think you still need another touch. Don't, don't get to the point where you get full of pride over the keys to the kingdom. Don't get to the point where you get exalted because of your position and your anointing that you get beside yourself and, and think that you don't still need another touch. Peter got so lifted up when Jesus said, boy, I say you're a rock. I'm going to build my church on that. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. But he got beside himself because of one area where he could see clearly. And, and when you get beside yourself and think you see it all, See, that's what's wrong with some of us. We really do think. We see it all. And we worship at the shrine of our own opinion because we so value our sight, not realizing the areas where we are totally blind and in need. Oh, I need thee. And in need. Oh, I need thee in need of another touch. And I came to talk to some people this morning. I know you're not a stranger to the touch of God, but what you really need is not some good advice and not some good wisdom. What you really need for what's going on in your family and what's going on in your health, what's going on in your neighborhood, what's going on with your kids, what you really need is you need another, another touch another touch. When they brought the man to Jesus initially, the man was begging. Begging! For a touch. You know, I found something out. It is annoying raising little kids. Especially if you're like a hands-on daddy every day like me, you know, like, like my wife and I, we're, we're as hands-on as you can get raising our kids. And the reason it's so annoying, there's a lot of reasons. One of the, one of the reasons it's so annoying is they need everything. They need you for everything. When they're real little, they can't eat without you. Can't use bathroom without you. Can't sleep without you. You know, can't do nothing. Can't get in the car without you putting them in the car. Taking your seat, put them on the roof. Can't 
get dressed without you. Can't put socks on without you, shoes on without you. Certainly can't tie shoes without you. Can't do anything without you. But thing is, the longer you raise them, they start not needing you as much. They don't need me now to eat. They get little chairs, you know, and they climb up on those little chairs and open the refrigerator without asking, get whatever they want. They don't need me. They don't need me to get a drink of water. They don't need me to dress them. I found something out as annoying as it is doing all that stuff for those little kids. That when they start not needing you, I learned something about my heart as a father. I need them little jokers to need me. So the man's not bugging Jesus when he comes up to him begging for a touch. Because what the man doesn't know is Jesus is blessed by the request of the begging man. Because God likes to be needed. Oh, does anybody need him? Oh, does anybody need Jesus? And so Jesus is hoping Peter will pick up on the sentiment that Jesus took so much time out and invested so much to get this man where he needed to be. Jesus is hoping Peter will take something from the object lesson. He's hoping Peter won't be so grown and spiritually mature and advanced that Peter can't look at him and say, I may have known who you are about the Christ thing, and I may have got the keys to the kingdom. I may be the bishop of the first church. But I'm begging you. Would you touch me? One Give the Lord a praise. I'll give him a praise in the house. I find out he'll touch you if you ask him. I found out he still responds to people who come to him begging for a touch. I found out if you, if you ask for him, he'll touch you. If you ask for his presence in your life, he'll show it to you. And if you ask him to, he'll, he'll do it, and he'll do it gladly. 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 We lift up our hands, Lord, to you in worship. For the beauty and continuity of your word, we thank that you're the kind of God that'll keep touching us until you get us right. 
And Lord, you see the people in this room that need a touch. You see the people in this room and how they're hurting and what they're carrying and where the difficulty is. Lord, I ask you in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you begin to move on them, that you begin to manifest yourself in their situation, and that you strengthen them right where they are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Give the Lord a hand praise all over the house. Just remain standing for one second. I'm almost done. I'm going to tell them, all them, something. But I want to tell it to you first. Because the Lord spoke it to me to say to them. But I feel it really magnified to say to you. And it's very simple. But the Lord says to tell you, he's still holding you. He's still holding you. every other mooring and support system were to break away and fade, you still would not because what holds you is the hand of God himself. He's holding you. The enemy will bring up the failures. The enemy will bring up the condemnation. The enemy will bring up the... God said, I'm still holding you. I've got you in my hand. I will not let you go. I'm still holding you. The steps of a good person are ordered by the Lord. He delights in the way. Though they fall, they will not be utterly cast down because the Lord upholds them with his hand. God said to tell you, he said, I got my, I got my hand on you. I got my hand on you. I got my hand on you. Pray like you know he's got his hand on me. Have faith like you believe. He's got his hand on me. Look at your circumstances and the things against you through this lens. God has his hand on me. And Lord, I pray as I have given them your word, you seal it in their hearts and you cause it to leak and permeate all through their being throughout the week. And bless them. In Jesus' name. Now, one more time, give God a mighty praise. Mighty praise. Mighty praise. Mighty praise. Oh, yes. Amen. Remain standing. We're out of here. 60 seconds. Bless Fest is coming up November the 4th. I am so excited about it. We are going to be, yeah, you can clap. It's an awesome thing to clap about. We are going to be giving somebody here a car that day, no strings attached, and we're going to be paying two families six months of rent relief for their housing expenses, and we're going to be giving away uh, cash cards, gas cards, 
uh, a local business here in the church, uh, someone that owns an incredible business here in the church has donated some gift cards to their restaurant. Absolutely unbelievable day of blessing the community. Now, some of you are new, and I, I don't want you to get confused about what Bless Fest is. Because I don't talk about Bless Fest in this way a lot. Bless Fest is not a church growth program where we try to show the community that we love them. Bless Fest is not like a, an engine where we try to bring a bunch of people in, try to have a packed out service. Bless Fest is not just for the sake of charity and being nice to people. Bless Fest was a vision from God that he gave me. My little boy had been in the neonatal ICU for six months. Today he's going to die. You know, tomorrow he's going to live but be permanently disabled. Today he's not going to be, you know, he'll, he'll be able to, you know, to, to live and have some disabilities and he won't be able to walk or talk. Then, then, then there's something with his bladder and his liver and there's a hole in his heart. Just, just cut spinal meningitis, this, that, just all these things. Just boom, 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 boom. And uh, we lived through it. God healed him. You know our story. And, and we came home. So we're, we were started in April and now we're home in September. And we were in $3 million of medical debt. I was trying to get approved to get my family in a house, couldn't afford it, stuck in an apartment, frustrated. And in 72 hours, not only had God healed my son, brought him home from, from ICU, but in 72 hours, this is my testimony, this is my life, God wiped $3 million of medical debt off of me. Now, now, listen, you'd think I'd just be skipping and jumping and doing cartwheels when getting a miracle like that, but when you go through something that traumatic, you feel completely drained at the end of it. And I felt so bad because I had no emotional or spiritual or physical energy to even lift up the proper kind of thanks for something like that. So I started walking around my apartment and I started praying, saying, God, this is a prayer David prayed in the Psalms when God gave him a victory that he didn't think he was going to win. And God gave him the victory. David prayed and he said, God, what can I render back unto you for your goodness toward me? What can I give back to you for how good you were to me in this situation? And I started praying that and I prayed it from mid-September all the way through to early October. And one day, the Lord answered my prayer in a vision, and the vision was blessed fest. He said, this is what I want. If you're asking me what you can do, he said, this is what I want. He said, I want you to birth, flesh out, materialize this vision I'm giving you. He said, I want you to be a blessing to people in the name of Jesus. And, and I, I did. I, I birthed that. One of the things the Lord told me in the vision is that after this thing was birthed, that many people, when they heard about it, would adopt it as their own. That, that they would look at the baby of Blessed Fest and they would say, I want to help feed that baby. I, I want to help put some clothes on that baby. I want to help keep that baby strong. I want to help that baby grow. And God said to me, you'll never have to worry about budget because every time you speak the vision that I gave you because the vision itself is anointed. People will be moved to give and if they'll give into Blessfest, I will bless them because they were a blessing. I'll bless them because they were a blessing. 
And so over the years, this is the seventh year we're doing it. And uh, in seven years, we've given away 10 vehicles to people who did not have a vehicle. No, you'd be clapping if you didn't have a vehicle. Do you know how much it changes your life when you, like, don't have a vehicle on a Sunday and then you get home from church and Monday you start your week with a car? It, it's it's life-changing. And then we've paid the equivalent of seven years of housing expenses. Seven years. Now, I want to tell you this. We've done it without any corporate sponsorships because I never want a corporate sponsorship from outside. This is our thing. What makes this thing special and anointed is it's your partnership with a God vision. You know? There's something very anointed about this, this project. And so every year, and, and it's an expensive project, but Every year we do it by faith. We don't like save up all year so we can get ready for it. Every year we just do it by faith because that was what God told me. And every year we're amazed at what God does because this happens completely by people hearing the vision and then seeing it and saying, you know what? I want skin in that game. I, I want to be a part of that. And the blessings people have received for supporting Blessed Fest, just, just astronomical. If the Lord has blessed you, and, and you can give sacrificially today. Uh, a few of you, perhaps you'll you'll pray about, and you'll be sensitive to this moment. If you can partner with us with a five hundred dollar offering for Bless Fest, I know there's I know there's thirty people in here for sure. I, I know the Holy Spirit will bear witness with your soul and spirit when I say this. There's thirty people that could partner with us with a $300 offering for Blessed Fest. But I want to challenge everybody. If you're not the few that I believe God's leading you to do 500 or the few that I believe God's leading you to do 300, I want everybody else, first of all, pay attention to what you're led to do because that's where your blessing's tied up. But I want everybody else, even people that normally come. You normally attend this church and you don't necessarily give. That's fine. That's okay. But I want you to consider for this, for this event, for Blessed Fest, the lives that are going to be touched that day when we bring people in, we do all of the giveaways. It's not just rent relief in the car. We're, we're giving away a bunch of gift cards, a bunch of cash cards, gas cards, restaurant cards. It's going to be amazing. And then after the service, we're turning the whole complex into a fall festival, and there's going to be tons of stuff for the kids. And look, I'm not letting our volunteers cook for y'all and feed y'all this year. We're bringing in food trucks for everybody so all the volunteers can enjoy the event. But it won't happen if you're not sensitive in this moment to what you can give to this anointed vision. So Holy Spirit, move on the hearts of those that can give 500. Move on the hearts of those that can give 300. 
And Lord, everybody else that can, I'm asking you to prompt them to get a $100 seed or as close as they can get to it. A $100 seed or as close as you can get to it. And Father, I thank you for doing again this year what you've always done, making sure that there was no lack and no need, continuing the vision of BlessFest. As you gather, you can give on your phone, you can text it, you can write a check, you can put cash in, uh, however you're giving. I speak that the return, the 100-fold return, the blessing of the Lord to reign on your finances as you partner and give into this offering. I pray the Lord starts returning and starts blessing by the end of the week, that you start seeing results on this seed by the end of the week, and it continue for the rest of the year. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Look at me. Look at me. Thank you, even if you're not giving today. Thank you. Thank you for hearing my heart. Thank you for letting me peel back the curtain into one of my most intimate moments and share with you what God did for my family and in me. And thank you, if you are giving, for partnering, partnering with a vision that, that I know, like I know the back of my hand, I know the Lord gave it to me. We speak blessing over all of you. We speak strength over you. We pray that you'll remember you can always ask God to do it one more time. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can bring your offering to the front or you can send it in on your text. We love you. I'll have communion. Listen, I'll have communion for you Wednesday night. It's going to be an awesome night. Don't miss it. You're dismissed.